I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. And while you're doing that, I forgot to do this in the first service, but one of our uh, announcements, the date is incorrect about the flowers. You have until the 17th of April, not the 10th, okay? So I've made that correction. It's written properly in all of our notifications, but unfortunately, uh, the verbal announcement was incorrect. Okay, some of you probably heard the name Chuck Colson before. Who, how many know who he is, Chuck Colson? He's now gone to be with the Lord, but uh, back in the day when Richard Nixon was the president of the United States, so we're going back into the 70s, there was a major scandal in Washington. You're going, that's nothing new about that. But this was pretty significant. And Chuck Colson was one of the top aides of Richard Nixon, and they orchestrated a break into the Democratic headquarters, and then they covered it up. And it later became known as Watergate. Well, Chuck Colson uh, was indicted and convicted and went to prison because of his activity. And in that time, God got a hold of his life. Now, how many know sometimes a bad thing in life can turn out to be a great thing in life? And what happened was, as he was, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and eventually was in prison and developed a real burden for the people he saw in prison. And out of that, he launched a ministry called Prison Fellowship. And then he later on became a very uh, interesting, in a positive way, writer. So as he relates in his book, Being the Body, he said, I was traveling to one of our overseas areas. I was on my way to Jakarta. Indonesia, and if you've ever gone to these long flights, you know what it's like, and you're taking transfers and all the rest of it, and it's tiresome, and we were there, and it was sweaty and hot, and we were in line, and we were worried about missing our next flight, and I was a little frustrated, and I can relate to this, because I've been in these long lines, and sometimes in these countries, there's a level of inefficiency. It just happens to be the way it is. I remember one time I was in the long line. We waited for an hour. Nothing moved. I thought, we're going to miss our flight. Time was going by, and finally, some guy come running out into the uh, terminal, screaming to get people moving. You know, it was just unbelievable. We were late. We ended up leaving late, and I missed my connection. What's, I can relate to what he's talking about here. So he decides, though, in, internally, there's nothing he can do about it. God's in control. He's just continually talking to people. Unbeknownst to him, a couple years later, he gets a letter from a businessman who lives in Singapore. The man who had been a follower of the teachings of Confucius, but had decided to send his children to a Presbyterian church to get some sort of moral instruction. One Sunday as he was picking up his kids, he heard the end of the sermon from a visiting missionary who happened to be promoting one of Colson's books to help people come to faith in Christ. The book was called Born Again, which is Colson's testimony. And he just happened to see the picture of Chuck Colson. Now, a few weeks later, he's in the line, uh, a parallel line, watching and recognizes the face from the book just over here and watching how he is having a wonderful time talking, you know, just rejoicing. They're having a wonderful time. And he, he says to himself, uh, he was so impressed by Colson's calm demeanor and cheerfulness that when he got back to Singapore, he secured the book Born Again, read it, and as a result, gave his life to Christ. Isn't that a powerful story? 
What, what am I trying to tell us? We never know who's watching our lives and the difference that our actions have on other people. How many go, that's probably true. We don't know who's watching us and we don't know how our behavior is gonna affect their lives. Another story before we get into the text here in Colossians. David Robinson, a national basketball great, he says these amazing words, the goal of our lives is not our glory. Trying to make life all about us, he says, pushes happiness further out of reach. Rather, our society, he says, is not wired for this kind of thinking. It's a me-centric world out there which destroys much of what should be good. Marriages are ruined because one or both partners are focused on their own happiness. Successful men and women are ruined by their own success believing they don't need anyone else's input. And for some, life's troubles are magnified because they believe that life is all about them. So one of the books of the Bible that challenges this me-centric, this me-first mentality is Colossians. I think would probably be at the head of the line. And the reason being is the theme of the book of Colossians is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does it challenge that notion, but it shows us in no uncertain terms that the supremacy of Jesus is, in understanding that, it means that we move from focusing on ourselves to focusing on making Christ not only the center of our life, but the essence of our life. And when we do that, when we live to bring honor and glory to him, something changes inside of us. We begin to live with meaning and purpose and a byproduct is that we're a lot more content with ourselves. There's a deeper sense of purpose and significance in our lives, a greater sense of joy, and a sense that, you know, even though the world seems to be crumbling around us, we're not falling apart because we know that God is in control of this world. And I think that's very powerful. Now, how many realize that uh, Jesus promised us a certain quality of life. This is found in John's Gospel. In John chapter 10, this is one of my favorite verses. Jesus is speaking of a metaphor about the good shepherd. And he says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus goes on to say, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, one of the things I share with people when I'm presenting the good news about Jesus is I use this verse. This is one of my favorite verses to help people understand what I call Jesus' purpose statement, why he came. And I ask people when I'm talking to them, I said, do you feel that you're living life to its fullest? Are you experiencing the life that Jesus promised, this abundant life? Or do you feel that there are areas in your life where you have you know, you have had losses. Things are being stolen and destroyed in your life. And you know, the average person that I've talked to, I've never had one person say to me, oh no, I think I'm living life to the fullest. No, most people say to me, no, I am not living that kind of life. And when I say to people, listen, do you think most people are living that kind of life? The answer is, I don't believe so. And yet Jesus said, my purpose in coming was to give you fullness of life. 
So how many here would say, you know what? I think I would like to discover the life that Jesus promised. I want to experience the fullness of life that Jesus said, I've come to procure or to secure for you. How many say, I'm up for that? I want to know how to live that abundant life. And that's what we're going to focus on today. I think we often, even as believers, we forfeit God's promise of an abundant life because we live as if our agenda rather than God's agenda for our lives is what it's all about. And I'm gonna make an argument here today that God is so good and God is so smart that what, when he created you and designed you, he had what's best in store for you. And when you and I try to do our own thing, it never works out the way we want it to anyways. We're never really happy with ourselves. But the moment we finally relinquish control and say, okay, God, I'm gonna buy it. I'm gonna surrender myself and I'm gonna go for living life based on your agenda. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a statement. You will not live with regret. You're gonna start experiencing a peace you've never known before. You're gonna end up having greater joy than you've ever had before. And the byproduct of living for God is that you're gonna be happy. You're gonna be far happier than you've ever been. And those are all beautiful things, and I can attest to that because that's the story of my life. I've seen that journey happen, and you know what? It just keeps getting better. That's the good thing about walking with God. It gets better and better and better. Remember years ago, we used to sing a song, he grows sweeter as the days go by. And I'm gonna tell you something, Jesus is getting better. Now, is he getting better? No, he's not getting better in the sense that he's changing. I'm changing, and I realize how good God truly is and how much God has blessed my life. When I look back in hindsight, I go, wow. I'm amazed at what God has done. I, I have no regret when I've, when I've obeyed God. Only regret you'll have in life is when you disobey him. So let's take a look at a few verses from the last chapter of the book of Colossians. And I think we're gonna find some very significant instructions on how to live a Christ-centered, God-honoring life that, that actually not only gives you and, you and I an abundant life, but it begins to impact and influence the people around us. So I'm up for this. You know, I, I think this is important. And so in Colossians 4, 2 to 6, we discover three life-changing ingredients that reflect this abundant life, which impacts not only ourselves, but the lives of those around us. And so we'll look at the first one. is simply a life devoted to prayer. To be fully engaged in knowing God. Do you know Paul writes in, in the book of Thessalonians? He says, you know, pray without, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Pray without ceasing. You ever thought about that? Or another translation says, pray continually. Sometimes we get a little confused, you know, is this means I gotta pray 24 seven, pastor? Does this mean I'm supposed to be walking around all the time praying? No, I, I don't think that's humanly possible. I don't think that's what God means when he says pray continually. Do you know what he really actually means? He means that you and I have our life so centered in God that whatever activity we're involved in, that when something occurs, our first response is to God. Our first response is to prayer. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're, you know, let's say you're struggling with addictions. You know, some people you know, struggle with addictions, right? Major struggles. Let's say you have a food addiction or maybe you have a chemical addiction and you're in a major moment of stress. What's the, what's the first thing you think about in that moment? Feeding the addiction. Come on now. That's the first thing that comes to your mind. So 
what I'm trying to get across to you is this is what it means to pray without ceasing. The first thing that comes to your mind when you're praying without ceasing is you're focused on God. You immediately, that's the first response inside of your soul. Uh, Book of John says that you and, you and I can do nothing apart from Christ. He says, Jesus, I am the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So our lives need to be firmly connected to him in order for us to be fruitful. And that's why Paul writes you know, in Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful. Richard Lenski explains that word devoted. He's a, a person that works with the Greek language. He's, he's, you know, he writes a Greek dictionary called a lexicon. He said the verb meaning uh, devoted means to hold on to something with strength and not neglecting or letting it drop. I mean, you're committed to this. this is, you're, you're addicted to it, basically. That's another idea there. Why such a strong appeal and an urgent command to communicate with God continuously? Well, I think it's because it will help you and I to become changed. I'll give you an example. Kent Hughes is a writer, and he wrote in a book called Liberating the Saints from the Success Syndrome. He describes vigilant prayer like like a, a photographic plate. You know what happens in a photographic plate? Well, you, you have an exposure. And prayer is like this time exposure to God. So here you and I, at times in our lives, and I would suggest that probably the best time is when we first get up, because you wanna, if you wanna really impact yourself and others, that's the, that's the best way to start. And so maybe you spend a little time with God, maybe 15 minutes, half an hour. Here he says an hour or two. But what's happening is the image of God is being imprinted more and more upon our lives. And so I think we have to find something that works for us when we're gonna spend time. Uh, I, I'm saying we're praying continuously, so that means in the day there'll be moments when we're, well, I, I'm gonna call them bow and arrow prayers, spontaneous prayers, okay? Or somebody says something and, you, and the first response is, let's just pray about that right now. That's when you know you're praying continuously. But then I think you need to kind of feed that in your soul. How do you develop that 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 continuous mindset of being in prayer towards God, you spend time with God. You have that exposure to God. And for some people, you know, like Patty, she's a lot different than me, my wife. You know, she's like in the you version, following Nikki Gumbel, and that's her thing, and she loves it, and that's great, and I'm watching what's happening in her life is, you know what, I've seen real transformation as she's, you know, doing this exposure to God thing. I see the change in her her mindset and her thinking and her prayer. It's very powerful. And then for myself, I, I tend to journal my prayers. I have a journal. I open it up every morning. I open my Bible. And what I do is I'm reading. I make what I'm reading become my prayer. And I start writing them out. And for me, that's the discipline that helps me to pray. Because how many of, when you sometimes get down to pray, you, you know, you, your mind goes all over the place. This is kind of making me focus in on it. So you have to find something that works for you. But I'm gonna explain this, why this is so critical. Because what happens when you're feeding your mind this stuff is you begin to see life through a new lens. And the more you spend time in scripture, pretty soon when you're looking at a circumstance, when in the past you would be filled with anxiety or frustration or anger or whatever the emotion is, when you're allowing this exposure to God in your life, what's happening is you're beginning to see it now through a different lens. And all of a sudden, scripture verses are starting to come to your mind, okay? And so some of us, 
And I'm going to say, us, I've included myself. You know, when I was a newer Christian, I battled anxiety. Okay, anybody here ever deal with anxiety? Okay, okay, that's, that's good to know. So some of us understand this. So how do you address anxiety in your life? Well, the Apostle Paul writes to us in the book of Philippians, be anxious for nothing, rather in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So what he's saying is, he's not saying you'll never be anxious. I still have moments when I get a little anxiety, okay? Anybody relate to that? There are moments but what, for the first thing that comes to my mind, the moment I feel a measure of anxiety, immediately Philippians 4, 6 comes to my mind. It's, it's like automatic. I, my mind is so trained now, the moment I feel anxiety, that scripture verse pops into my mind, and immediately I find myself praying that prayer, and I'm thinking about it, and I start committing it to God, and I begin to rejoice and begin to thank God. And you know what starts happening? Listen to what happens when you continue on reading in verse seven. It says, and then it says, and the peace of God which passes human understanding will guard your hearts. I think this is pretty good. So now the, the peace of God. So what God says is if you'll do this, this is what I'll do for you. I'll put peace inside of you. It'll protect you. What usually happens when we have anxiety? What are we doing? We're focusing in on what's creating the anxiety called the problem. How many go, I do that, Pastor? I get so locked in. It's just like my brain is focused on this problem. And you know what Paul says in verses nine, as you continue reading in chapter four, he says, think on these things. Whatsoever things are good, pure, lovely, if they have any virtue, any praise, think on these things. So what's God telling me? Stop focusing in on the problem now. Let it go. Give it to me. I want you to think of something that is positive and beautiful and good and, and something from the word of God. And when the moment you start to do that, what happens to your anxiety? It flies away. All of a sudden, a peace comes over you. And you know what, how you start to think? Hey, listen, God can handle this. This is not too hard for God. God's bigger than this problem. I can start relaxing now. Isn't that wonderful? And then all kinds of other scriptures come to your mind. The more you feed your mind the scriptures, the more they start coming to your mind and they begin to help facilitate encouragement. Now, let's take a look at the early church. I think this is fascinating. Notice how devoted they were to prayer. In Acts chapter one and in verse 14, it says they all joined together constantly in prayer. They all joined together. This is not personal prayer. This is what? Community prayer. This is corporate prayer. This is the life of the church praying together. You know what's happening in our church right now? Some people are made a commitment to come and pray on Tuesday nights and something is going on. I'm gonna tell you that right now. And I'm gonna challenge you, as we talk about being devoted to prayer, we, we have to make decisions in life. And this is real practical. Here's a real practical decision. How many here, you're right now, you go, there's some things in my life that I'm deeply concerned about and I'm praying about. Anybody here? Maybe you have unsafe family members. Maybe you have medical issues. Maybe you're concerned about your future or your finances or you're concerned about the Ukraine or some other issue in the world right now. How many can say, yeah, I can think of some things right now? Just raise your hand all over the place. Yeah, of course. Why are we not doing this? Because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It's great when you're doing it by yourself, but it's greater, it's greater when you do it together. 
And you can see what happens because as they were doing this, the Spirit of God came on that group. And you know, last, in, in our prayer meetings are a lot different than Sunday morning. There's a lot of interaction and participation. People are participating and everybody's sharing and praying. And last Tuesday night was very powerful because uh, you know, Patty, she, she got motivated to share with us. And Kim, you were here. That was so moving, wasn't it? I mean, the whole spirit of the meeting changed, but she shared a little thought that she had shared with me earlier, and she said, you know what I'm noticing? That every time the church gathered together for prayer, the Holy Spirit moved in a supernatural way. You see it over and over again in the book of Acts, and he said, yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely correct. You know, we're praying for a greater sense of God's presence. Well, it comes when people are crying out to him. And I believe that God wants to do a great work right now, but you and I have to do something on our part. We need to be devoted to prayer and things will begin to change. What was the result of them coming together and praying? Well, Peter gets up and preaches and that day 3,000 people became believers. The Spirit of God fell on the 120. Peter stood up, 3,000 got saved. How many go, that's pretty powerful stuff. They were devoted to prayer. They were praying together. And then it says they devoted themselves as a result of that, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. They didn't stop praying. Do you know one of our big issues is once we have a beautiful answer to prayer, we stop praying. Come on now, how many here, you probably have wanted, don't want to admit it, but it's true, you just stop praying. And I'm going to say, never stop praying. Jesus said people ought always to pray and never to give up. We need to learn how to persist in prayer, and they were persisting in prayer. And what was happening? Well, look at verse 47. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So God was multiplying and continuing the work. You know, we seem to be very content with a little dribble, a little dribble here and a little dribble there. I would like to see a mighty outflowing of God's work in our city and in our province and in our nation. How many say, Pastor, I wanna see God do some pretty powerful things? Well, then we better get with the program here and continue seeking God and experiencing this. Um, notice it says here, John Piper says this, prayer is, all, is about as central to the meaning of the created universe as you can get. God created us according to Isaiah 43, seven for his glory. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Okay, let's just unpack that. Stop. Why did God create you? For his glory. Not for our glory. It's not for our happiness. Hey, listen. God will make you happy. That's a byproduct. He made you for his glory. So how does that work? Well, it just simply means he created the universe so that people created in his image would look to him to satisfy all of their wants and needs so that they would get the joy and God would get the glory. I like this. Are you following what I'm saying? Listen to what he's saying. He's saying God created you as a needy person so that you would need God and as you went to him, he would meet that need and he would fill you with his presence, he would fill you with his joy, he would fill you with his peace, but he would get the glory. And then he goes on and says, this looking to God is prayer. So prayer is not some small thing. Prayer is at the heart of why God created the universe, because it's a communication with God. But in reality, the center of the created universe is man created in the image of God. And the meaning of man or woman in the image of God is to display God's glory. And the way God delights to display his glory and humanity is by being dependent on God through prayer. Very simple. 
It's kind of a loop. And you and I are in that. And it's a beautiful loop. He goes on to say we need to be watchful. Why does he say that? How many know we have a tendency to get distracted from prayer? As a matter of fact, Jesus was in a crisis. He says to his disciples, hey, watch and pray, right? What did they do? What happened to them in Gethsemane? They fell asleep. And so, but Paul is not talking here about physical sleep. Paul is actually talking about being spiritually awake and alert to what's really transpiring around us. I believe if you're a prayerful person, you're looking at life through a different lens, okay? Watch what happens. Piper goes on, prayer is not designed as an intercom between us and God to serve the domestic comforts of the saints. Now, I have this great image. You know, if you've ever been to a resort in some nice place in the world and you're sitting down there and people are running out your beverages and your food to you, that's not the image that we should see with God answering prayer, okay? God's not running around, you know, waiting on our table, if I can say it that way. He goes on to say, rather, we're in a spiritual battle. This is like a walkie-talkie. You know, it's a link between the soldiers and their command headquarters. How many know that if you're being fired at, you would like to know that you got backup and support and you're, you're, bringing, you're calling in the Air Force and the Navy and all the rest of it to come and rescue you. You guys are relating to this. See, these guys are smiling. They're military people. They get it. Folks, how many know that you're in a spiritual battle? Anybody figure that out yet? And how many know that one of the things we're doing when we're praying is we're actually calling headquarters and saying, God, I need a little help here. I feel like we're getting pounded on this beach. And God goes, thank you very much. I'll just move my uh, movement to that area for the moment. Thank you, Lord. Richard Lucas says, it's the prayerless church that the enemy can best do his work of disruption. How do you like that statement? Wow, I don't want to be part of the problem. <clears throat> you know, Jesus in one of his parables, Luke chapter 18 and verse one said, we ought always to pray and not to give up. Why do people quit? Why do people give up? They're, they're not praying. As a matter of fact, we are to pray with a thankful heart. It says, watch and be thankful. Now, I think it's interesting that people who pray are generally, number one, positive, confident, and have a thankful attitude. Okay, how do you like that? How many like those, those qualities? How many here say, I want to have a positive, confident, and thankful attitude? Anybody here besides me? That's where you want to be camped? That's where I want to be camped. But you know what? One of the characteristics of prayerlessness is murmuring and complaining. You see, if you're, if you're, if you're praying and you have the right attitude, the right heart, you're not murmuring and complaining. You're bringing these things to God with gratitude and thanksgiving. Thanksgive, thankfulness is an evident quality of a spiritually mature person. There's problems. How, how many know, I've been, I've, I'm older than most of you, not all of you, but most of you, and I can say this, you're gonna always have problems. And the people that are older than me, are we right? Well, of course, never goes away. So what's the, what's the thing? Why let these problems get you down? Why don't we start learning how to trust God? Why don't we become people who commune with God with a grateful heart? and allow God to work powerfully in those situations. But let me move on to the second ingredient of an abundant life is commitment to communicate God's goodness, God's message. And here in Colossians, Paul says, and pray for us too, 
that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. One of the reasons why we're so ineffective in reaching out to others is we have neglected or not allowed prayer to dominate our lives. And the key to effectively reaching out is to start by not eaching up, but reaching up, okay? We need to reach up. I believe if we're connected to God and we're reaching up, we're gonna end up reaching out. And I'm gonna show you how this works. This, I'm not even telling you to go out and share your faith. I'm telling you, if you connect with God, you will be sharing your faith. Watch how this links up. You know, do you know how powerful prayer is? A number of years ago, there was a school teacher in Perth, Australia. And uh, he retired. He probably thought, I haven't done that much. And a number of his kids in the class eventually became pastors and missionaries. And all of these kids that grew into, into this, these powerful men and women of God, they couldn't figure out how, how did they become a Christian? Who was praying for them? Because they actually, they, this guy named Brian Rosenfeld went back and his wife Angie was in this group in Perth and she goes, I don't even know how we got, became a Christian. My, none of my family is Christian. None of my friends were Christians. None of us were Christians. They have no idea how this all came about. And so eventually they tracked through all these different ministries. They all discovered these people came from Perth and they actually attended a certain class of a man by the name of Mr. David Bunton. And in that class, they finally found Mr. Bunton. Brian went and found him and he said, listen, this was years later. He had been retired. He was now 70. He, he said, I want you to know, Mr. Bunton, you're the only connecting person to every one of these missionaries and pastors. What did you do? And he said, really? He was overwhelmed. He said, I didn't do a lot because I couldn't do a lot. But he said, I would sit at my desk and many times just softly pray for each of my students in this class. That's all he did to influence their lives. The only common point of spiritual connections the students shared was that they were prayed over by their teaching, teacher. Does that tell you how powerful it is? See, we don't think this way, but I'm telling you, we're, we're locked into the natural material world. We, we think big is better and all the rest of it. I'm not convinced. I think this is <clears throat> powerful stuff. As a matter of fact, why is it so hard for people to become a Christian? You ever ask yourself that question? Here's the reason. Paul tells us in Corinthians, and even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And the God of this age, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. What's gonna remove that veil? It takes the work of God's spirit. And how does that happen as believers start praying? There's a direct connection with what's going on there. So Paul continues to pray. He says, listen, I'm, pray for me. And he says, I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I, as I should. <clears throat> Do you know what's really fascinating about Paul? In his prison epistles, we're reading one right now, Colossians. Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians. These are all prison epistles. If you read Paul's prayers in those epistles, they're really shocking. I, I had an epiphany this week. Not once does Paul pray for anything circumstantial or outward. All of his prayers are for what's happening inside of us that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might know the hope of your calling, that you might experience the power of the resurrection, that you uh, might be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man. They're all dealing with spiritual stuff on the inside. 
I found that so fascinating because here's Paul in a terrible circumstance. He's in prison and he's not asking them, please pray for my release. He doesn't even mention it. What's he praying for? That God would help him to proclaim the gospel with clarity and have the you know, boldness. And then Paul writes to the Philippian church. He says, listen, guys, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He says, good news. I'm thrown in jail, but this is a good thing. What? I've got a captive audience, and they've even chained me up to Roman soldiers. And you know what's happening? These guys are saying, what are you in for? And Paul says, well, I'll tell you what. I was on my way to Damascus, and I had, a, I had a, an amazing experience. The God of the universe appeared to me. They go, really? Yeah, his name is Jesus. I was actually persecuting his followers, but then he showed up, and he totally changed. What's he doing? He's sharing his story with everybody that's in prison and everybody that's chained to him, and people are becoming believers. He says, hey, this has happened to the furtherest. This is a good thing that's happened. How many are here saying, well, I, I, wouldn't have not, I would not be looking at my jail sentence as a good thing. Paul is celebrating it. Then he says this, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. He's had the opportunity to explain why he's there, which led him to share the gospel, which led people to come to faith in Christ. How many go, wow. So most of us, when we're in a bad situation, we're just going, this is awful. This is terrible. We don't, have, we don't see it the way Paul sees things because he's on a different page. He has a different agenda. See, when you have our agendas, God, put me on the beach in the Bahamas agenda, right? Paul's got, hey God, give me the opportunity to see a whole bunch of people spend eternity together with us so we don't have to have another kind of beach for all of eternity. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Because everyone that comes to visit him on the outside are going, what's going on, Paul? He's going, man, I've never had a greater opportunity to share the faith. And what's the worst they can do is throw us in jail or kill us. So, hey, we're going for it. And he said, a whole bunch of people now are preaching the gospel. Okay, let's move on to the third ingredient. And it's the way we present the gospel. You know, so often... When we, we look at the gospel, we get all hung up on, I don't know how to say the right words, right? But take a look at how Paul tells us to speak. Be wise in the way you act toward the outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. It begins with lifestyle. Now, what does Paul mean here about being wise towards people who are unbelievers? Well, it's how we live our lives. You know, we're either attracting people or repelling people. We're either a stumbling stone or, you know, or, or a stepping stone to Christ. Now, earlier in this book, chapter three, it's fascinating how all of this is tied together. How many know it's always tied together? You know, it's how we relate to others in our everyday relationships where the most powerful sermons are demonstrated. They're spoken many times without words. It's the way we're relating to people. You see, in chapter three, you discover how employers are to treat their employees with fairness and respect. How many, how many know if you're saying, I'm a Christian, and then you're cheating your employees, or you're showing partiality, you're actually discrediting the gospel. How many know that's true? You're, you're, you're making a farce of what the gospel's all about. And then we find employees must be willing to serve their employers as if they were working for Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were working for Jesus, how many here would probably put your best effort in? 
Anybody here might put your best effort forth? See, I think when you're a Christian, you should go to work and be one of the best employees that company's ever had. That, to me, is the best way to preach the gospel to the company. They're going, man, I wish there were 25 people like you. Amen? Are we getting the picture? But if we're walking around lazy or trying to get out of work or we're gossiping or, you know, or even if we're preaching the gospel when we're supposed to be doing our job, that's not a good thing. Now, it's different if you're on a break and somebody asks you a question. I get that. I, I did that too. But when I was at work, I worked. And, you know, actually people tried to get me fired one time from a job I was working at. But you know what happened? The boss didn't want to fire me because he was making more money because I was there because I was such a hard worker. And he fired the people that complained instead. The most powerful validation of the gospel is a loving, respectful, caring, and forgiving attitude towards each member of the family. Think about how we treat our spouse and how we treat our kids. You know one of the reasons why a lot of kids grow up turned off to the gospel? Because they didn't see mom and dad loving each other and caring for one another. They saw bickering and fighting. You know what I always tell people? The greatest gift you can give your children is love their, their mom or love their dad. Because then you'll stay together married and that helps the family. You follow what I'm saying? See, how, how many go, this is real practical, Pastor. I go, I know, and it works. You know, because if you, if you have a loving heart towards your spouse and a respect towards your spouse, and you're showing them dignity, and then all of a sudden, you know, your kids grow up. It's really powerful. What happens? Why are we getting Brady here? <laughs> and he's not even talking. Okay. All right. So it begins with our lifestyle. So one of the problems today... Uh, is that many are trying to live the Christian life in their own strength. How many know that's true? That's problematic. A prayerless life is a powerless life. And you and I can't live the Christian life apart from Christ, right? Uh, and I think eventually it becomes a loveless life. You have less love. And I like what William Barclay says about the word agape. I'm gonna close with this. I know I'm running out of time. I got just a couple minutes here. But he said this, the Christian love, like the Christian faith, is a commitment to the total personality towards a certain attitude toward our fellow human being. I don't, I don't know if you realize this. You know, when we look at the word agape, that's the Greek word for the kind of love that God shows us, which is this unfailing, unconditional love. How many may not have known this, but that word really wasn't in usage in the Greek language until the gospel came along. Did you guys know that? Because that was foreign to the Greeks. That was foreign to most people that you could love your enemy. That was foreign to most people that you could love somebody unconditionally. That just wasn't in people's thinker at that time. It's so amazing what God did for us. It's so powerful. As a matter of fact, to, that is to say that there is a God who is unconquerable, benevolent, undefeatable, and has uh, goodwill towards humanity, no matter what a person is like, no matter what a person has done, God will never seek anything but that person's good. The Christian love is that attitude to others which no matter whether it's refused, disregarded, rejected, insulted, injured, tortured, agonized, will never turn to hate. That's powerful. But will preserve only an undefeated an undefeatable goodwill. I think that's powerful. Clearly, you have to have God in you to behave like this. How many go, that's true? That's the way God relates. You know, when people hurt us, what's the natural human response? To hurt back. 
That's the natural human response. I'm just saying that's normal. But can you imagine when your enemy does bad to you and you do good to him? How many go, that's not normal. That's supernatural. That's agape. That's God's love. You see, that's why I'm saying that our life is so much more than words. But what about our words? It says, uh, let our words, our conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I think we need to speak with people graciously. And we need to actually add a little seasoning and make it interesting, right? So I ask my question, does my life, does your life cause others to want to discover what makes us tick? When that happens, we need to be prepared to give an answer. Isn't that true? It says so in Peter. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ. Or in other words, put God above everything else. Make him Lord in your life. Make it his agenda. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, you're thinking to yourself, you know, Pastor, I've heard all this before. The need to be devoted to prayer. The need to proclaim the message by the way we live and by the words we use. The question isn't, do I know this stuff? The question is, am I doing this stuff? Sometimes we know things, but we're not doing it. So I'm gonna have a stand as we close, and I'm gonna just challenge us in a very practical way. Because you know what? We can hear a sermon, and we go home, and we can forget about it. And that's very typical. I'm not upset about it. I get it. That's what happens. But here's what I'm gonna say to you today. How many here... You know, with every head bowed right now, just let's be really honest. You go, you know what, Pastor? I tend to get a little grumpy. I get a little frustrated, a little frazzled, a little anxious, a little upset by some of the things that are happening. Anybody fit that category? Did I get a few people there? Okay, the net went out. There's a bunch of hands going up. That's okay. That's good. You're honest. So here's what I'm going to say to you. How many here, different question, you have a significant issue that you're concerned about. Salvation of a loved one. Maybe it's children, spouse. It could be a friend. Maybe in your life right now, you're battling a medical issue. Or maybe someone you love is battling a medical issue. There's something on your heart and mind. I'm gonna challenge you right now. Think about it. You've been praying, or maybe you haven't, I don't know. But I'm gonna invite you to come Tuesday night. You say, why are we going to do this? Because I believe that God wants us to be devoted to prayer, and he wants us to do it in a corporate way. And I believe the Spirit of God's going to come, and we're going to have a real breakthrough. And we're going to see more people saved. We're going to see more of our family members getting right with God. We're going to see the Spirit of God work with healing, and all of these things begin to manifest themselves as we get serious about this. So I want you to think about it. Some of you, I know your schedules are not going to be conducive to Tuesday night. I get that. But some of you, you're going, yeah, I can do that. And I'm going to do that because I'm going to get a little serious about this. Number one. Number two, how many here you can say, you know what, pastor? I know that if I would stop grumbling and complaining and carrying on, 
And all of a sudden, my attitude went from negative to positive. I went from positive, you know, having a, a confident, loving, respectful attitude. It would probably shock some of the people that know me right now. W would that be true of maybe of who you are? And let me ask you, if God could do that in your life, don't you think the people around you are gonna say to you, what's happened to you? What changed? And I think that's when that verse kicks in. Now they're asking you for the hope that's lying within you. What, they're, what, you're, what I'm saying is, if your behavior goes from negative to positive, people are gonna say, what's going on in your life? And you're gonna say, you know what? This is what's happened since I surrendered and lived on a new agenda. Before it was, I'm a Christian, I'm trying to do my thing and get God to serve me. I've shifted over to, God, I'm doing your thing and serving you. And all of a sudden, God's spirit has been filling my life and he's bringing me such joy and such peace and such hope and such a positive attitude. That's what you're seeing. I'm gonna go, that's a powerful communication because now your life is backing up the word of God. How many see what I'm saying? How many go, boy, is this ever practical? How many says, wouldn't it be awesome if my home life changed like that for some of you? How wouldn't that be amazing? That's what I'm getting at today. See, we can come to church and hear a sermon and it just doesn't affect us. Or we can say, you know what? I'm gonna actually take some of this stuff, put it into practice and watch what God does as I apply God's word into my life. So with every head bowed right now, how many here say, you know, Pastor, I'm taking you up on this challenge today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just say either I've got to make a change in my attitude or I've gotta make a change in my priorities. And you know what? I need to get devoted to prayer. And if that's you today, just raise your hand. I'm gonna pray right now. We're gonna, I, I'm, I believe God wants to do something very supernatural in this church, but he needs us to cooperate with him. So Father, I thank you this morning that you're speaking into our lives. You're challenging us today. And I believe, Lord, as we respond in obedience to you, you're gonna bring about a transformation in our homes, at our work. You're gonna bring it into our physical bodies. You're gonna touch our families. You're gonna touch our kids. You're gonna touch our grandchildren. You're gonna do a superb work of grace in our lives. And I thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.